0: Hello, and welcome to the Energy Gang. I'm Melissa Lott, the Director of Research for the SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. We're just a week into the new year, and I hate to say, but we've been hit by our first COVID casualty. So Ed is off ill this week, and Ed, we're really missing you Uh, and wishing you the speediest of recovery. So sorry that uh, this happened at the start of 2023. So I'll be taking the reins today before Ed returns for the next episode. And while Ed is out, I'm really pleased to be holding down the fort with someone who is quite familiar to listeners of The Energy Gang, and really anyone who's been working in the energy sector for a significant period of time. And of course, I'm talking about Amy Myers Jaffe, the Director of Energy Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab and Research Professor at the School of Professional Studies at NYU. Hey Amy, how's your 2023 going?
1: So far, my 2023 has been smooth, so fingers crossed that it stays that way.
0: Fingers crossed. I hope you enjoyed the holidays.
1: I did. I I, I did a, a tricky thing. I decided to make a prime rib for Christmas, which is always a little difficult because... My family, they like it medium rare and that's like really hard to do, but my meat thermometer performed and uh, those people who liked it really red could have it really red and those people who didn't want the ends to be too dark got ends that weren't too dark. So a successful Christmas effort.
0: That's nicely done, go technology. The other day I was trying one of those candy thermometers uh, for my holiday cooking and uh, we'll just say it didn't work out, but maybe next time, user error for sure. (laughs) Well, I know that the gang wrapped up 2022 before the Christmas break, and we were talking about what had happened over the course of the year. And it seems only right that today we look ahead into 2023 and what we might see over the next few months and as we run into the fall in COP. So we're going to be starting out a discussion looking at Europe's ongoing energy crisis. We're starting to come out of the winter. I know it's only January. There's plenty of time to go. But what are we going to be seeing as we go into the spring and this coming year? What do wholesale gas prices actually mean in terms of knock-on effects globally? What can we really expect? And then we're going to be pivoting into environmental action and what we might see for environmental action in 2023. Do we expect to see a doubling down on alternative energy sources on the low-carbon transition or a shift back to legacy oil and gas as we have these fears of a recession looming? And then we just can't escape it. We're going to be talking about the run-up to the next COP, with the Gulf region hosting its first COP and a massive... I'm just going to call it a litmus test for Abu Dhabi's net zero commitments approaching. Is it going to be pushing towards more investment? Could we see other nations in the region pledging more to decarbonization? Just what do we expect as we run up to COP? But first up, let's focus on Europe. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, it set a whole slew of things into motion. And here on The Gang, I can remember many of our discussions regarding the extent of the impacts and how we thought that things could play out. And of course, it's completely clear that Russia's role in the energy sector more broadly made this a true energy crisis and continues to make this a true energy crisis, impacting not just oil and gas, but also coal and nuclear and broader supply chains. I can also remember in the early discussions that we had around Europe's responses, you know, highlighting the moment, I think it was back in May, when the European Commission revealed its plan to end Europe's reliance on Russian fossil fuels and accelerate the transition to green energy, I can remember us talking about how many winters were in that five-year plan and how the mildness or severity of the winter and the knock-on impacts on energy prices and on human health would really set the tone for how things were going to move forward. I remember saying at the time that the next couple of winters would really set that tone for what the transition looked like. And I remember many of us commenting on how we just really hoped that the winter was mild so that people could stay safe and healthy in their homes. And this week in the headlines, I will say, I'm seeing these statements saying that Europe has avoided the worst possible scenarios, that warm weather is helping to keep the lights on and people safe. So Amy, I'm going to pitch it over to you. I'm just really curious about your thoughts on this. How has Europe done so far this winter?
1: Well, I mean, the devil was in the details of the weather. The weather has been mild. And not only did the Europeans, we saw the actually to date, the worst of the energy prices in the summer when the Europeans were building natural gas storage ahead of the winter. Um, But that natural gas is still all in storage. And indeed, one of the amazing things is that in the last couple of weeks, there have been days when storage in Europe has actually gone up and not down. But it's come at a cost, Melissa. You know, I hesitate to say, I mean, they did. Some people are saying now, like you're saying, that they've weathered the worst. But, you know, industrial gas use is down, you know, 25 to 35%. And people are saying that industries like fertilizers and aluminum and chemicals, uh, there are certain basic industries in Europe where the future of those industries is now being called into question. And there is this question about, you know, who benefits? Well, that could be the U.S. because we're back down to having $3.50 uh, per million Btu gas at Henry Hub uh, benchmark, uh, whereas Europe at its peak European natural gas prices, you know, hit above eighty dollars per million Btu, um, and now it's down to you know between twenty and thirty million Btu, so that's much better. But that's still you know pretty prohibitive um, and costly uh, compared to other parts of the world. But we're not globally out of the woods. And the way I like to explain it is as follows. Sorry to be so long winded, but it's important for listeners to understand that in 2019, the Europeans bought from Russia 200 BCM, billion cubic meters a year of gas. And that gas is basically staying under the ground. In oil, a lot of the crude oil was shifted from Europe to China and India and so forth. But in gas, you know, if it was going by pipeline, it's just shut in. And so we are seeing a giant disruption in supply to the global gas market that is unprecedented. We're talking about 20% of the sort of previous traded volume of global LNG and, um, and, you know, the Russians could only pipe 15 BCM to China. So there's no shifting that gas anywhere else. So it's basically gas off the market. And the Europeans have outbid everyone uh, for a lot of that gas. I mean, Europe's um, imports uh, are up, you know, almost 60% from a year ago. And so what that means is I'm developing a new concept here on Energy Gang. Uh, We have this energy security justice question. So you've got utilities in India, you've got utilities in Pakistan, in even Argentina in in Sri Lanka that can't afford to buy gas on the global market. And, And you're getting somewhere where the wealthier countries can afford to pay for energy security and, you know, the European governments have spent 567 billion euros uh, to cap consumer prices uh, on the continent. Uh, but then what happens to everybody else? So it's, it's st- we're still in a major disruption. That Russian gas that was going by pipeline to Europe is still off the market. And Europe may have weathered the storm. But the repercussions across the whole global gas market are still quite huge.
0: So I want to come back to like the higher points on this discussion, but I want to follow up really quickly on something specifically you were talking about there, which is that if Russia can only pipe a small amount of its gas over to China, if there really is this, I mean, significant disruption in gas volumes and where we're able to move them, how much can that equation, how much can that math change in the next year till next winter? I mean, is that how long does it take to actually shift those things to change that math?
1: oh, you know, it's going to take years to change that math. So you hear these talk that, you know, Germany is putting in floating LNG terminals, and they might be in place next year. But that just means Germany can outbid for the same amount of LNG that's still in the market. Because it takes, you know, three to five years to do what we call a greenfield project. So I now realize there's a hole in the LNG market and prices are high. So I'm gonna either build an export terminal, say you're a company in the United States, or I'm gonna build a new drill for natural gas someplace in Africa or Asia, and then you know, do a new LNG project. And you know, the problem's even bigger than what I'm saying, actually, because the Russians, unfortunately, were also going to be big suppliers of new LNG projects. So they had something like 40 million tons a year of new LNG that was supposed to come on with Yamal 2 and the Baltic project. So none of that's going to happen either. And when you look at the numbers for what the um, you know the big companies, they're only uh, proposing to add 30 million tons a year. Um, And they only have, you know, another 30 currently under construction. And a little bit of that might come on next year. But people are already saying, well, you know, if it gets cold and the Europeans use the natural gas they have in inventory, then we're going to be back to the same place next summer where the Europeans are going to have to refill their inventory. And it might come against a china by next summer, that's no longer, and hopefully for them, no longer in lockdown. So you could have a lot of pressure on the market by then, um, if we're not in a major recession, which let's hope we're not.
0: And it's all really good points, really interesting. I will say, at the like highest level of this discussion, I agree with you. I see these headlines; they're like pretending like winter's over, a which I don't think it is. Um, it's January tenth when we're recording this today. There's there's still time to go. <laughs> Just saying. Um, so there's some time left. I mean, this isn't this isn't over now. Have we avoided some of the worst case scenarios of the run through November, December, and into the New Year? Sure, we can say that because it's already happened. But we still have a lot of time ahead of us, and we still have to see how that all plays out. But also, I'll, I'll add two points, and, and I think you were touching on it when you're talking about industry and what's happened to industry in Europe. So, but I also don't think that let's say that. Yes, the rest of the winter is mild, and I know we hope that's the case for a whole litany of reasons, but even if it is, I don't think that we're going to soon forget the frightening prospects of what was unfolding for this winter, Um, and I certainly don't think, to your point, Amy, that industry is going to forget this, so it's the idea of, you know, when push comes to shove, is industry going to be able to have the fuels that it needs to do its business, And if it's going to be put under stress and strain in certain markets, what does that mean for future investments? What does that mean for prioritization of investments that need to come to a decision in the near term? I don't know how you're thinking about what this means for industry going into the next one or going through the rest of this year. Will they be shifting operations? What kind of decisions will they be making about investments? Any thoughts on that?
1: You know, I, I think 2023 is going to be a real challenge year. And I think it could be a decisive year um, in the following way. You know, the whole landscape for making investments in energy has changed. And it's changed partly because of the weaponization of energy and the geopolitical backdrop, not only of Russia's invasion, but of Western governments saying, I'm going to take charge of this and I'm putting in a price cap or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. Right. So you have Western governments highly intervening in energy pricing, or, you know, intervening in markets by, you know, the Biden administration released the S Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And now, you know, if prices go down, if there's a recession, oil prices are down, they're going to refill it, right? So, So, but on top of that, you know, if you're a company and you're going to invest in a three to five year wind, some project that's going to take three to five years to put in place, the question is, what should you actually be investing in? you know, should you be investing in offshore wind, which, you know, has performed very well uh, this winter, that's part of what's helped uh, Europe. Um, But then you have to worry about permitting and supply chains and so forth, which did not go smoothly uh, in 2022. Um, Or, you know, do you believe that this crisis means that there's a bigger window outside of Russia, you know, to invest in fossil fuels But who's going to give money for what? Um, I think it comes down to investment. And, you know, the industry has this tendency to look at the levelized cost of energy, uh, to throw out a slang, right? Um, And then the time horizon of a project and their long-term forecast for energy prices. But in today's world, you actually have to consider how many years do I think my asset can operate? So if you believe that LNG prices are going to stay high for several years, um, then the next question is, well, if I develop a project that I need to amortize over 25 years, will it operate at this level of export volume 25 years from now or 15 years from now? And, And when I do my calculation of internal rate of return, how long am I... Should I be saying this asset will be at its maximum lifetime um, of operation? And I think the question for that is really an unknown today. Uh, just to give you a comparable thing, because, you know, people like to say that, you know, clean energy is dead and uh, because of this and people are turning back to coal. Um, but, you know, clean energy is not dead and every government in the world is either putting in a carbon price or putting in incentives for clean energy, So the EU27 imports of solar panels from China since the start of the war is up 70%. And a lot of that is Germany. And so I really feel like when you look across the gamut, not only are governments going to intervene more in markets, but they might intervene more in the favor of renewable energy. And so it's not just, you know, in the old days, a company like an Exxon or a Chevron would have made a re-establishment of their thinking about what they thought the long-term price for LNG would be, and then they would invest. But today, they have to think about if they invest, how long will that asset really produce maximum revenue? Because it probably isn't 35 years.
0: Yes, it's really good points. And I'm thinking through, so we talk about industry, and I'll just clarify real quick and say, you know, in one case, I'm thinking about the energy industry and all this energy infrastructure that we're looking to build out to keep the lights on, to accelerate the transition, to get off of Russian sources of fossil fuels when it comes to the Europe case, and to making sure that all of the assets we're building to keep the lights on today are transition ready, I guess is the phrase that I'll use, something that can actually be a part of this broader decarbonization pathway. And then the second piece of it is other industries that rely on all these fuels to produce the goods that are going to be selling into the market. And so how does heavy industry in Europe actually keep producing? I mean, heck, how does Microsoft and their data centers keep the lights on and keep all their data centers running if we are in a crunch next winter? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot to be seen. And there's a lot to be seen over the next few months and over this next year.
1: And, and you know what, Melissa? Uh, I really feel like... Companies, especially, you know, in manufacturing and so forth, are looking at different solutions. I mean, just last week, a German, a big German conglomerate started to say that maybe the only way for it to Mm. keep its operations going is to do what we, there's a term called captive uh, electricity, which means you actually put in a dedicated solar farm, maybe with batteries Mm -hmm. for your plant right and and captive power is now actually over 10% of the solar installations in Africa it's a very popular solution to the instability of electricity services on the continent of Africa um, but it it, it it it's we haven't figured out a way to regulate and coordinate these kinds of things because if i'm a data center or i'm a manufacturing plant somewhere, and I put in my own energy facilities, then I'm not pulling from the grid, uh, and then maybe the entity that was making a lot of money selling electricity to industry, uh, and then making less money on uh, retail households. Um now maybe there you know and if you're a utility in Africa you might be even further down the road in bankruptcy because your top clients that could possibly pay you are doing their own independent thing. Um so I, I think we're facing what's needed is in a lot of locations just a major reform in how we price electricity. And um and and should we be charging differential prices for industrial use and, and, and retail? And how do you guarantee everybody reliability? I, I think that paradigm in this world uh, becomes much more challenging. And the further we get along the energy transition, the more necessary it is to think about how to integrate the retiring system with the uh, uh, expanding system.
0: I mean, certainly agree that our markets are not fit for purpose when it comes to what's going on right now. They're not fit for purpose for the transition. This is part of the messiness of the transition and why, you know, the road is bumpy. I will say within also differentiated prices for different customers, I'm having this uh, mental flashback to conversations with the government in New Zealand years ago, talking through some major demand response incidences they would had in their history and the degree of response that they were able to get from consumers. Um, and I Remember this one conversation with milk powder producers in the country, and and this may sound just odd that I'm bringing up milk powder, but it's a really interesting example of a huge and pretty inflexible load. When you have the milk, you need to dry it, you need to turn it into powder, or else you have to waste it. And actually, wasting that much milk because you can't stop milking your cows; it's not possible. Um, it has knock on effects through your whole your whole business. So, where do you dispose of? millions of gallons of milk. I mean, this is, a, this is a significant challenge and problem. And so you can say, okay, let's flex for a couple of days. But if you're asking people to flex over a season, that's a big problem. And so how do you actually incentivize and pay for demand flexibility in the system in a really meaningful way? And I know we've had conversations many over decades. I'm thinking back to Amory Levin's earliest books talking about energy efficiency and demand flexibility. Um, but how do we actually Integrate that into our markets in a meaningful way to up our game on that. I mean, I would be surprised if one of the outcomes from all that is going on in the world and then the energy world right now, if one of those outcomes is not a shift towards the like practically achievable and maybe the most prudent pathway forward in the transition to net zero energy, which is the overall development of the energy system, is not an increase in more modular, more distributed energy supply and storage resources like I I would be surprised if that like on balance that piece of the pie didn't become more than we might have thought it would not too many years ago and the question that then comes into my mind is if solar panels whether it's for an industrial customer who wants to have their own local power that they know they have access to um you know who wants solar panels and batteries let's say on their own sites or whether it is country saying you know as we get back online. These things can be built in months once we get that permit as opposed to, yeah, needing years to bring a system back online if you've lost you know, a huge chunk of your power grid or a power plant, much less. What does that mean in terms of other countries, lower income countries who also want access to those resources? And then on the flip side, that want to participate and contribute to and be part of the supply chain for those resources, where do they come into play? And I'm, I've heard many arguments as to how this might play out that piece of it i'm jury's still out for me jury's still out but i am i would be very surprised if this didn't shift the balance overall in terms of the types of resources we bring onto the system
1: well you know just today there was a headline um about a um an african country uh saying that they want the chinese to do the um do the manufacturing of the batteries in their country, and not send the lithium back to China. So, um, I, I do think this question of um, I call it you know it's my term energy security justice. Like you know, as it was, we were starting to make progress on the um, on the sustainable development goals of the UN. People were moving out of poverty uh, across the world. And of course, now we've had this dramatic setback um, where we're going in the opposite direction between COVID and these high energy prices. And it it does sort of raise this question um, about, you know, who gets these resources? You know, if if there is going to be, you know, high demand for uh the resources of distributed power, um, does that mean that wealthy Industry and consumers in Germany are going to be able to get access to that, the materials that are needed to do that. But if you're we're on the African continent and your government was planning to have distributed energy be the solution for rural uh, populations that were lacking electricity access, um, you know, I, I think that there there's some real questions. Um, and I think our understanding of the world we've been in you know, we have global markets and there's no protectionism in energy and everything's a global market. And, you know, every anybody who has the money can outbid anybody else who doesn't have the money for energy supply. I mean, that's how the oil market has functioned. Um, that's how, you know, the LNG market has functioned. There hasn't been a shortage of solar panels, but you could imagine if everybody realizes that they need to do this one thing, in some places to prevent an emergency, whether it's just for hospitals um, or or other kinds of vital services, um, you know, then you start to get into this question of, well, who's going to finance that? And we saw that, you know, I know one of our topics, so let's pivot. We saw that come up big time at COP27, right, Mm -hmm. which is our wealthy countries who are responsible for the vast majority of the cumulative emissions of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere? Going to pay something to help countries that contribute something like, you know, Africa contributes something like 4% right now of global emissions. What are they going to get as they decarbonize? You know, how are we going to finance access to new energy? Uh, in in places, um, in places like Africa,
0: and this actually pivots us really nicely into the second topic. I know we want to talk about, um, which is around how global economic conditions, and I would say that term includes all the things that affect how money gets invested, where it gets invested, and what it gets invested in. How is that going to impact on top of all these energy security concerns? All of this, okay. This winter is all right. Let's see how next winter goes. If you do subscribe to the fact this winter is over, which, of course, we've already talked about. But how is that going to affect conversations about environmental and climate action in 2023? Do we expect that to slow things down, speed things up? And then what are the after effects of things like Repower EU and the Inflation Reduction Act and other actions that countries are taking going to affect things? Again, Into I know and the other topic we want to talk about, which is what it means for COP. I oh, don't know. Amy, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, like many things in the new world with mass communications, our perceptions of what is considered acceptable post-COVID is really changing. And I I think that in the context of global climate negotiations, this question about how we're going to finance all of this and how do we Um, mobilize the private sector, Um, you know, part of the easy part of mobilizing the private sector is when government invests alongside. So there's something in climate finance we call a blended finance, where, say, um, a government can get a private sector company to come in and invest in uh, solar-powered pumps for irrigation somewhere in Africa, um, but they need to have uh, what other, other, you know, infrastructure that needs to go in to support that. Uh, or say you're just putting in a, a major hydroelectric or wind farm or something of that nature, then, you know, who's paying for the transmission? Um, so one of the problems we've seen with uh, Chinese finance, which has been much more forthcoming from the Chinese development banks uh, than Western lending, is that uh, they'll you know, fund a specific installation because maybe China's also uh, exporting the labor for that installation. And maybe they're exporting the solar panels or the parts to the wind uh, uh, equipment for that installation. Um, but then there's no funding for the transmission lines. And so, um, or there wasn't a resolution of, land permitting. And so the installation went in a place where it wasn't needed. Um, And so, you know, we still haven't sort of cracked that puzzle for how to have, you know, adaptation and mitigation funding through international agencies reach the vulnerable countries that need it and, uh, and then support private sector investment at the same time.
0: Yeah, I know there was a significant amount of uh, criticism about the outcomes of the previous COP saying, great, we're now going to send funds to countries that are being impacted by climate change. What does that actually mean? How to, you know What are countries going to actually be willing to do? But then bringing it much closer to home, I don't think that here in the United States, I don't think that most, if not all, countries are really reconciled with this balance of what are we willing to do in terms of building out energy infrastructure, which we'll need, whether it's a low-carbon future, a business-as-usual future, somewhere between net zero, you know, wherever we go, we need infrastructure, and what we're willing to do in terms of building out that infrastructure. What compromises are we willing to make? Because every single one of these things has trade-offs, which I can't count the number of times I've said that phrase, whether it's in my classroom on this show or elsewhere. We all know that. And trade-offs is not... You know, me saying you shouldn't make the choices, that's not at all. It's just acknowledging the trade-offs and which ones that individual communities and groups and countries and regions are going to be willing to accept. I will say in terms of 2023, I do think we're going to see a mixed bag in terms of some countries leaning into alternative energy resources really hard, which we've talked about, um, transitioning whether to Western Europe, the United States and other parts of the world, But then what does that mean for other countries that are trying to develop? And I do wonder in different African nations, in different parts of the world that still lack, you know, universal access to electricity, modern energy services, clean cooking, all of that, what that means in terms of what infrastructure will kind of be available for them to build, what kind of investment will be available to them? Because it seems like there's a really tough point where on one hand, it's tough to get investment for building out natural gas resources, for building out oil and gas resources,
1: well, I think I think the point, Melissa, let me see if I, I I can fit in here and then they can edit that. You know, one of the things I think is really the point, Melissa, which I, I like to say, and uh, it's unpopular in the oil industry, but it's the reality, which is that we really built this global, you know, oil and gas infrastructure, world infrastructure, in a way that left out a third of the population from having modern energy, right? So, you know, I... I, I find it very dystopic when you know when the oil industry praises itself for bringing development you know to the world, saying it's as if they're saying like, well, now we care about that 30 percent of the world population we didn't service for 50 years, uh, because we're, you're thinking of closing us down, right? but But the reality is a lot of those communities could be better served um, with renewable energy. Uh, especially if we start to get more technologies that can manage the uh, variability. Um, And and also, um, you know, the the speed at which I can repair it. Um, And so the reality is, even with the debate about how dear the Europeans have the nerve to say that, that African nations shouldn't try to go to natural gas as their transition fuel when Europe is using so much natural gas... But the reality is there's almost no pipe. I mean, I think there's like two pipeline projects on the books as being discussed in in Africa. In most places, it's just not even affordable uh, to develop natural gas resources and pipe it there or, or develop LNG. So the reality is hydro is the thing that most countries are looking to expand in Africa. But if you're a national planner, You really need to know how you think rain conditions are going to change in your country over the long duration. And you need to be thinking about how to pair that with a very concrete uh, program for installing renewables.
0: So I'm thinking through what this means as we go into the next COP and we think about, okay if. Energy security is just going to be at the forefront still of conversations if the transition to net zero resources is going to be accelerated by everything that's going on in the world. And we're thinking through who's benefiting where and what this means for the development of currently low-income countries. I'm just trying to think through What that means for what we expect out of COP 28? Because I know when I'm looking at the headlines, and maybe you're seeing it differently, you know, Amy, I'm not. I'm not in the rooms right now, you know, with the negotiators. Very few of us are. Um, But in terms of what we expect from COP 28, what I'm seeing is a lot of conversations continuing around practical pathways forward, just pathways forward. The idea of every single type of energy resource being at the table, and how is that actually going to come into the COP 28 narrative? So, in terms of investment and what that means. I mean, certainly, I think we all expect more and more and more investment in all the technologies we need to get to net zero, including carbon management technologies, but also including the technologies we need to keep the lights on today. Is that how you think about it, Amy? Or do you think the conversation going into the next COP is going to be very different?
1: Hey, you know what? The COP is going to be in the United Arab Emirates. And therefore, we're going to see, I think, Melissa, you're highlighting exactly the right thing. We're going to see a fight over carbon sequestration and storage, right? And, and and should we be doing, you know, CCS technologies and greenlighting them, or should we be pursuing green, green, green? And, you know, even the countries themselves, like Saudi Arabia and others in the Middle East, uh, and then even taking Australia to the side, you know, there is this big question because you have some players that are, you know, not only betting on CCS, but they're betting on, uh, uh, hydrogen from natural gas or hydrogen, um, you know, made from, um, with CCS. But if I'm worried about energy security, and that is my primary worry, which I think was really moving forward, like people have like, you know, seen the lights, pun intended, right? And they they know what they need to do. You want to control your own destiny. And so are you going to be willing to in, import ammonia, from Australia or from Saudi Arabia or for some other country, even the United States, or do you wanna produce green hydrogen from whatever renewables you have inside your own country, whether that's bio waste, whether that's solar, whether that's wind, and you see India suddenly talking about green industrialization and you see big industrial conglomerates like Reliance saying we're putting billions of dollars into developing green hydrogen pathways in india right so india is not thinking about hydrogen as an import material they're thinking about it as something that they can make inside their own borders from their own renewables and they are gas poor so they're not even thinking about lng they got no lng in their plans now so when you hear some you know oil companies stand up and say they're going to green light a new lng product be- project because it's going to be huge demand in china and india i think you have to ask yourself is that even true because maybe china uh, and india are going to be pursuing green hydrogen from their own renewable industries
0: yeah i think it's a great point like i think it's a great point i the hydrogen conversation has really seemed to ramp up over the holidays i will say in the in the circles that i was still engaging with though i did take some time off i did take some downtime um over the holidays so um, I I promised the people in my office I would, and I absolutely did. But the conversations that I was still engaged with it was this idea of again, is hydrogen going to be everything to everyone, or is it going to be you know a small piece of the pie, just an industry? And then who's going to be producing it, and how much of it is going to be locally resourced, so locally produced, and how much of it is going to be moved around, you know, the world is going to be exported and imported by different countries and actually shipped around. And I'll say I agree with you. I think that. Countries are going to use their local resources to produce green hydrogen when they have a lot of renewables, blue hydrogen when they have a lot of, you know, resources to actually capture and store carbon or use it for other applications, those types of things like that's I I think we are going to see it play out that way, especially when you layer the energy security on top of it.
1: If I'm a head of state anywhere in the world today, I want to know from my people, what can we produce inside our country where we're not dependent on someone else? Period, and you're even seeing a revival of small nuclear reactors, you know, somewhat for the same reason. But you know, let's not forget that Bill Gates's nuclear plant in Wyoming is delayed for two years because he was planning to use recycled Russian uranium. But Melissa, I want to make sort of another point. We've done some research on uh, state enterprise, um, and the interesting uh, outcome: we looked at the green patents versus fossil fuel patents for new technologies, so drilling technologies versus green patents. And what we found was in countries like Saudi Arabia and um, Russia, where now I'm not sure they're in the market well enough, or PetroChina, that they're still spending a lot of money on drilling technologies, thinking that they're gonna have to develop their own resources, right? Whereas the majors themselves, their patent output is something between 40 and 70% is actually in green energy whereas for a for a company like Aramco over the last 5 or 10 years it's more like 10 to 25% um, has been in clean energy and that includes carbon sequestration so you know you've got a big announcements out of Saudi Arabia about carbon sequestration and they have had a big effort in R&D in that area. Um, But it's not producing, you know, patents at the same volume um, as uh, investments in fossil fuels. And so, you know, you really have to ask, well, who's going to dominate in that? And um, right now, both in, you know, clean energy and in CCS, you know, the majors seem to be uh, uh, having more success. Well, I
0: am always amazed by how fast the time flies when we talk, Amy, whether it's on this show or off of the show. I I think it's fair to say that I always enjoy the conversations and I absolutely learn something new every single time we speak. All right. So I'm going to move us into our free electrons here in the minutes that we have left. So Amy, what's your free electron this week?
1: Well, Melissa, I'm staying with your theme because you're talking about, you know, questions about hydrogen. I did, besides making my, after my prime rib, we all watched the movie on Netflix, Glass Onion. Oh, nice. And so <laughs> you can imagine, um, I won't give away how, but there is in the film, uh, hydrogen it comes up in a kind of, and, and there's even a line in the movie about the Hindenburg. And I thought, hmm, here we are in popular fiction, and we're painting hydrogen as highly explosive like the Hindenburg. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I do think um, that is my free electron, which is, you know, have we uh, uh, moved ahead? And then the other thing I'll mention, uh, which is also about, you know, who who produces all these energy solutions. Uh, the other mm-hmm. theme of Glass Onion is that it's about a tech jillionaire who is extravagant and a fake and a fraud and um we're seeing an increasing number of movies casting tech billionaires as the bad guy and um and that also doesn't bode well for you know innovation and energy efficiency and you know trusting tech billionaires to deliver small nuclear uh, uh, cap- capability and, and and so forth because we're having this sort of uh crisis of confidence in uh, in the sanity of uh, tech billionaires and their ability to do what is actually socially uh, positive for the energy space,
0: that's really interesting. I'm uh, selfishly glad you didn't give too many spoilers because I still need to watch the movie, but it's on my short list. Um, I've got plans, but that's that's really, really interesting. So I will say I'm hesitant to share my total free electron because this is something Ed and I have been going back and forth on a lot, but I'm going to share part of it, which is, uh, we just got through with our first ever electric vehicle road trip as a family, and um, I've started crunching the numbers. I started crunching them as we started driving, essentially. Um, but overall, if you take all the holidays in um, and you say, how many kilowatt hours did we actually run through and how much did that cost us? If you, I'm going to exclude maintenance for today because I've got some estimates in terms of maintenance costs and the differences there that you'll see when I'm running in the EV versus our diesel vehicle that we use to typically to pull our trailer. But in terms of the rough numbers, over the last month, we burned through about 1600 kilowatt hours, spent about $430 on that electricity. And when I do rough numbers on what that would have cost us if we'd run in our diesel vehicle, again, excluding maintenance, excluding all those those other things. And I will also give the caveat, if I did not use all the locational specific costs of diesel that I could have, I just took the lowest number that I saw on our trip. Um, so this is probably a very conservative number, but we saved about a third um, compared to if we've been running a diesel vehicle. And I will say that number is based on us using some of the most expensive electricity we could find, known as Tesla superchargers. Along the way, it's way cheaper when I charge our car at, at our at our house, where we're lucky enough to have a place where I can plug in. It's a lot slower too, so it doesn't work for a road trip. Um, but this is some you know relatively expensive electricity and some pretty conservative. Fuel numbers. So um, I have some delightful graphs and delightful numbers here. I'm going to add maintenance on top of it and talk about it more when we have Ed back hopefully here soon. But that is what I am running through and thinking through what this means. If I'm saving all this money, I mean, we've talked about this so many times in the past around EVs. It's I pay the money up front and then I'm saving money over time. And what does it mean in terms of the mechanisms we've put in place to make these types of technologies accessible to a wider sloth of the population? Those who would currently struggle to get a car loan to purchase the vehicle or to have the cash up front to actually purchase that vehicle. But those are some of our initial numbers from our pretty epic, I will say, road trip. Um, The other thing I'll just say is that I was pleasantly surprised by how much EV charging infrastructure has improved. Um, I will say, Amy, after our conversations about broken chargers um, in episodes last year, I was uh, waiting for it. We did have three instances where the first charger in the bank we went to did not work and we had to move no idea why it didn't work. It always seemed to be the end one because we tried to park on the end. You know, it's just nice. The- and it, after a point in the trip, we started parking in the middle. just as our default because it was like three times. The last one didn't work at the superchargers. Um, but we we didn't have any scary moments. Um, we had one time where because of the town we were in for a couple of nights didn't have great charging infrastructure. We did have to kind of make a side trip to go charge at the superchargers. But It's pretty seamless. I don't know, especially when you're in the state of Florida, I will say zero problems finding chargers in the state of Florida. They were everywhere, it seemed. Um, So that was pretty great. By the way, those are my initial numbers.
1: And I I have to tell you, because I one time my gasoline car was in the shop and I had no choice but to take the electric car from New York all the way to Boston. No problem. Unbelievably seamless. And in fact, I was conservative, and so I stopped to charge on the highway, only to realize that my first stop, which was to have lunch uh, with my dean, there were charging stations right in the parking lot for the restaurant, so I didn't even need to have stopped.
0: That's awesome. Um, Fantastic. I will say we did stop on our trip, Amy, more than we needed to for charging, just because I was like, ah, I really want to stretch my legs you know, let the dog out for a walk that kind of stuff. So yeah, right. I was like, right, oh, are right. a closer yeah, trigger. Right. <laughs> like, oh, it's next to a Starbucks. Perfect. Let's do that one. <laughs> so, talk about really, really um, lovely. Amy, it was really great to see you and to speak with you today. Really enjoyed the conversation. I always seem to learn new things when we talk and also enjoy the conversation. So, it's great talking to you.
1: The same here, Melissa. Just uh, always always wonderful to hear your insights.
0: Also, many thanks to our producer, Toby Biggins Gilchrist and above all many thanks to all of you for listening we're really looking forward to the podcast as we evolve it through 2023 and as we keep following all of these critical issues that are happening in our energy systems around the world we're always keen to hear your thoughts so your praises your criticisms your comments your complaints your ideas for future shows what questions did we answer today that you really enjoyed and what questions didn't we get to that you wish you could hear our thoughts on so please do keep them coming in. We're still on Twitter, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at, at M-C-L-O-T-T. And if you don't already follow Amy, I'll say she's at Amy Jaffe Energy. And uh, she's got some really interesting, I know I follow all the stories that she's putting online. So definitely follow Amy as well. So we're going to be back again in a couple of weeks with, I hope, fingers crossed, double crossed, a fresh and well-rested Ed. And we'll be covering the latest news and views on the energy transition. Until then, hope you all have a good week. Bye.